I find the idea of a musical city fascinating. I think about Mumbai where I grew up, listening to the sound of the traffic and the horns beeping, but also the rhythmic calls of the food sellers on the road, the music being played in my neighboring flats, my fan whirring above my head, and the sounds of the waves from the sea in the background. But eventually, in these heavily built urban environments, you can start to tune out a lot of the sounds that you can hear. Your body and mind become detached. But in this episode of Create the Future, we invite you to radically retune your ears to the cities around you and rebuild your relationship to the urban world by imagining a new vision for the future of cities. From how radical ideas such as musical cities can transform our health and well-being. Music was originally made by and for the body, and so we, we embody it, we can feel it. It's a representation of health and sustainability. To the direct and positive impact music can have on our economies, as well as shaping public policy for the better. We have evidence to demonstrate that places that invest in music and other forms of art and culture are better places to live. And what the future of our cities could look and sound like. People come together and collaboratively create the urban soundscape. I'm Roma Agrawal and these are the questions I'll be unpacking with Shane Shapiro and Sarah Aditya in this episode of Create the Future. Join us as we dream up new rhythmic ways of existing in cities across the world today. We have two fantastic guests here today to talk about musical cities. So, who is in the room with us? Yeah, my name is Shane Shapiro. I am the founder and chair of a company called Sound Diplomacy. We work with cities and governments all over the world on culture nighttime economy and music strategy and policy. Uh, I also run a nonprofit called the Center for Music Ecosystems, which works with the United Nations and other global governments to help incorporate music into solving big problems uh, in society. And I wrote a book called This Must Be the Place, How Music Can Make Your City Better, which came out in September. And I've been on tour ever since for that. Do you get much sleep? Eh, on and off. <laughs> uh, I'm used to being on the road. I've spent most of my working life on the road. So you get conditioned, I guess, in that sense. I guess. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, Sarah, same. Could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your work, please? Yeah, I'm Sarah Detia. I am a senior research fellow at University College London, where I direct the arts and sciences program for a laboratory, which is quite unique in the world, called Pearl Person Environment Activity Research Lab because we simulate environments at one-to-one -one scale. So it's basically like the real thing, but in controlled conditions, including lighting, sound, smell, but sound in relation to all the other senses and trying to understand how perception actually works so we can design the world as you know a better place for everyone who has different capability in terms of sensorial issues. 
You've also written a book. Yes, I have. Um, it's called Musical Cities, which is uh, the sort of theme of the podcast. So that's perfect. And it is about all the ways in which music can help us design more sustainable cities. Shane, so you're currently in London. Can you maybe describe the music? And I'm, I'm going to put that in air quotes for the minute because I want to know what that means, the music of London for us. Uh, well, I, I think it's completely impossible to describe it as a singular thing. <laughs> so a city of 10 million people obviously has 10 million different interpretations of, of music to them. I think it's loud. I think it's brash. I think it's full of energy. In many regards, I think it probably derives from or is influenced from Black and Indigenous cultures. You know, London is a city, like like all cities to me, all cities are influenced by music, whether they choose to accept or understand it or not, they are. And London does understand and do quite a lot of work to support its music ecology and music economy. But to me, the sound is everything all at once. Now, I hadn't come across this term musical cities until I'd started reading and researching for this podcast. So my question I can start with you, Shane, is, is every city musical? Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, when there's people, there's music. Every city has people making music in one way or another in it, uh, let alone it doesn't need to be a city. It can be a town or a place. But the work that we do isn't really about the existence of music as an art form in a place. It's the role that the local community, both public and private, how they incorporate music into the decisions that are made to invest in their place. So a music city is a city that kind of builds a data and evidence base around music to help understand how music interacts with other things like planning and licensing or regeneration or education or tourism or community development or crime or any of those issues rather than just has music as a form of entertainment that happens after work. Music is one of those things to me that is incorporated into everything that we do, whether it's intentional or unintentional. So a music city kind of tries to peel that apart like layers of an onion to understand the role that music genuinely plays in a community and then takes an intentional approach to engaging with it, whether it is through infrastructure, through programming, through investment or whatever. So based on the opinion that all cities are musical, I'm still assuming that some cities are going to do this much better than others. Yeah, all cities are musical, but not all cities are, uh, let's say, music friendly is a better way to put it. Yeah. There are some cities that really take a quite intentional approach to build policies and frameworks and, and data and evidence bases around music. And some just kind of let things happen. And I truly believe that those who have the knowledge can make better decisions. So Shane, you're, you're coming at this topic from the view of people, the music they create, the policy, the culture and so on. Sarah, you come at it from a slightly different angle. Yes. So are all cities musical to you? And, and I would say we'll have to agree to disagree. Shane. <laughs> <laughs> we have different definitions, I think. Of Absolutely. What is, he's, he's also talking about music cities and, we're, and I'm talking about musical cities. So I think we might be using the term in a slightly different yeah. way. Because for me, I'm looking at it from the, the starting point of rhythm. And rhythm is at the core of urban life, life in general. And are you talking about rhythms like, I don't know, waking up, going to work, going to sleep? There's rhythms everywhere, different scales, at different temporalities, different speeds and frequencies. So we've got, yes, the rhythm of everyday life, whether you slept or not last night. <laughs> 
you know. And then, of course, that coincides with night and day or day and night, depending on when you sleep. And, and that's the rhythm of the environment. We've got rhythms of, uh, you know, the tides and the moons and the seasons, as we see now. Suddenly it got really cold mm-hmm. in London. And we're seeing arrhythmia right now, I believe, you know, the fact that we are not sleeping at night, that we are having these weird fluctuations in temperature. We're lacking rhythm and that is climate change actually Mm. and it's concerning and I do come from the point of view that rhythm by definition means repetition. Sustainability means repetition. In order to be sustainable, we need rhythm. Yeah. We're talking about two completely different things, but they are yes. aligned. You're, <laughs> you're are. talking about physiology to me in a way like how human beings are incorporating rhythm and sound and, and from a physiological perspective, which is hugely important where I'm far more boring. I'm talking about government policy. <laughs> you know? Well, I think we're giving Roma a nice little challenge to, you know. <laughs> No, but I can see I can see how the two come together. They but are. Sarah, I want to just explore a little bit more deeply what you like. If, if again, you know, because all three of us are in London today, let's use London as an example. If I'm walking here and I can hear, I don't know, a bin truck, and I can hear people talking, I can hear some clanging sounds, yes. or like somebody worrying a coffee machine in in the background. Yes. How does that relate to your? understanding of a musical city. Yeah, so, well, obviously there's the, let's say, um, for a want of a better word, superficial aspect of hearing these sounds. They affect our urban soundscape aesthetically. They are the soundtrack to our everyday life, yeah. basically. So we're used but, to talking about like an urban landscape in terms of what you can see. So yes. you might see buildings, you might see countryside, you might see greenery. Exactly. But you're saying that our ears also have a similar yes. pickup and yes. understanding. So that would be our, our background noise yeah uh, to our everyday uh, urban lives in london but then of course we have different ways of listening and this is why we have different definitions of music i suppose we can take that as like an aesthetic thing oh it's too loud it's you know uh, uh, it's disturbing i don't like it whatever our brain would automatically start to guess what is happening you hear the sound of the garbage truck and you know the garbage is being collected even if you can't see it you know you hear the person driving by and you know there's a car even if you you might not see it around the corner for example so there's that ecological way of listening and then there's the a semantic way of listening which is basically listening for meaning depending on how far down you go but you might ask yourself why is that person driving why are there so many cars? And then that, you know, that can lead to a whole other discussion of urban planning and transport, um, public transport, for example, or lack of it. Or And so I, I feel like the sounds I'm talking about, whether they are musical or not, because for me, something that is musical is aesthetically not pleasing. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, you can find some aesthetic value in it, mm-hmm. experience, uh, experientially. But th- what I'm talking about is that it's, these sounds are indicators of uh, urban behaviours, how we choose to interact with our environment and with each other. They're representations of that. And we, if we use what we hear as an indicator of these activities, we can learn more about how society works. That's really, really interesting. And what I'm thinking now that then connects me back to kind of Shane's world and all of this is the tube station that I used to commute from very regularly for over 10 years. One of the random 
train stations in London on the Jubilee line used to play classical music. Ah, uh, yes. And then there was this feeling as I would come in that was like, oh, and I would li- listen to it for, I don't know, about seven and a half seconds, right, as I'm passing through the station to get to the platform. But it did something to me. But do you know why they do that? It's not to make your day better. It's oh, that's to a make, shame. It's, it's, to deter, <laughs> it's to deter young uh, juvenile delinquents or, or whatever they might call, you know, antisocial behaviour because young people can hear the higher frequencies and and are not so attracted to hanging out in places which play classical music. Yes, uh, certain frequencies of classical music uh, make people feel like they're being watched. Ah, <laughs> that's interesting. Surveillance music. <laughs> in essence, yes, you feel like something is around you and when you feel like something is around you, then you're paying more attention to what is around you. So it's not just a deterrent for antisocial behavior. It is also just a a way to calm people, mm. in essence. Um, and there are other types of music that do that, too, in different ways. But like that's why we've seen such a exponential growth, really, in, let's say, wellness music or music that is being used in meditative or exercise or other forms of wellness. You know, that's one of the faster growing sides of the music industry. You know, it's... For example, Peloton, the company, they paid more money for their music than TikTok did last year. Wow. Just for example. So Peloton paid more money to the music industry than TikTok, which to me, it does show the, I guess, restorative power that music can have if it's deployed in particular ways. Yeah, I think it really depends on who's deploying it and who's... Uh, appreciating it or not. And why? Yeah, and why? why they're deploying it, right? Exactly, yeah. No, I'm genuinely really disappointed right now. I'm like, oh, <laughs> this, they, they decided to play classical music to make me, Roma Agrawal, <laughs> well, you know, feel happy for seven and well, a half that's seconds. that's beauty of beauty <laughs> and, uh, you know, issue with, with public music is that someone really loves it and someone really hates it. So yeah, yeah. if you're on the right side of the coin, <laughs> it's your lucky day. <laughs> but Shane, can you maybe talk about how your world of, of music and cities relates to how people feel about where they live. My work is barely holistic in that sense. It, it is based on kind of large government policy. So I'm often one or two steps removed from the music that's being made on the ground somewhere. And my work doesn't really involve genre in that sense, because I have to talk about music as a singular thing. But I truly do believe, and we have evidence to demonstrate this, that Places that invest in music and other forms of art and culture, to be honest, not just music, are better places to live. And the reason is because in order to intentionally and actively invest in music and culture, you have to have a better understanding about what people want. And to have a better understanding of what people want, you have to know who they are. And there is a little bit more community engagement and community interaction when money is spent in a particular way around how we're redesigning or building places in communities to uh, allocate for or provide spaces for music, art, and culture, or all the way down to kind of, you know, the public funding of festivals and and fairs and and concerts and things like that. So like by investing in music in, in a different way, you can use that to boost your kind of economic development pitch to try to attract and retain more people. And that can be done in very specific ways. Same with tourism as well, which, you know, whether you have a heritage asset or you're promoting something new, if you're intentional about it, then you can use that to attract particular people. And so I do think that when we really have a, a an understanding of music in our communities, as wide ranging as humanly possible, 
then we can deploy that knowledge for particular means and objectives. We've done a lot of work in a city in the United States called Huntsville, which is in Alabama in the South of the United States. It's where NASA is based. So they have a very high-tech workforce building spaceships and stuff. Our project with them was specifically to incorporate music into their talent attraction pitch because they wanted to attract people away from Silicon Valley to come and move to Huntsville. And that included building new venues to accommodate for more recognized or reputable artists so people don't have to travel to Nashville, which is an hour up the road, to go see their favorite bands, to providing more music-related community programming, including setting up choirs and music education for kids and free festivals. And the city has been very successful. It's the fastest-growing city in the state, and it has attracted far more investment than most you know, 350, 400,000 population-sized cities. Music's not the sole reason they do that, but music is part of the argument in terms of why they do that. So say you've got this plot of land and you can design a city from scratch. What would you do to make it a nice place for your ears? What does a good city sound like? Okay, well, first of all, probably never have that <laughs> blank canvas. New cities have been built in, yes. in the Middle East and even, even in the UK, people discuss it. So, yeah. so let's say that okay. you know, so, it is a possibility. Okay, <laughs> so my first question would be, for whom is this city? Because cities shouldn't exist as objects. They are evolutions of people's needs to live communally together which is why, in a way, the most successful cities, the most sustainable and musical ones, the ones which have grown over time from community, collaborative decisions and basically catering for the lowest common denominator. We're talking about not starting with the car, but we're starting with feet, you know, and walking and, and bodies and interactions, social interactions, rather than, you know, individuals in driving around, not interacting and having traffic jams and then public spaces being empty and things like that. So there are already musical cities that exist and they are all different anyway. Yeah. And there's no one musical city that tops them all, I think, because they they come from different cultures and, and that is the driver. I think they come from people. So ultimately, what we're saying is that the cities that will sound the best or that are the best for us kind of orally in that sense for our bodies yeah. are cities that centre empathy and people and yes, community. Yes, exactly. And also because the, the, you have to think about the performers because once I, I build this magical city in this magical plot of land, you need someone to play this city and if they don't know how to use it because they are, that's not part of how they behave, it doesn't suit their rhythm, you know, then my performers are not going to perform mm. in the way that I expect and it will sound completely different. So I think it really just has to start with people coming together, communities and incorporating everyone. Because it doesn't even have to be a blank canvas to become a musical city. I was in Lima a few years ago for the International Forum for Urban Interventions and it was full of, let's say, architects and urban designers and engineers. But we ran a workshop to learn how to adapt the space with contact microphones and amplifiers and speakers in a public space in the old town to turn it into a musical instrument. Because this 
square was empty, uncared for. Local people had tried to create some improvised street furniture and things like that. So in that respect, it was usable, but it was not activated. And so we, with this technology, very simple and very cheap, they created musical instruments out of their street furniture and they began to improvise music. And it was something that was collaborative and, you know, shared experience and something that also was performative and it attracted attention. And so through this whole process, it became a musical urban space. And that was basically very little investment, very little time actually with this in one afternoon. But I think it just these small things that change behaviour, that connect people on a one-to-one level. It's not about running an event where, you know, you buy a ticket and you leave again and someone's organised it for you. It's this bottom-up approach, which I think is, you know, one part of making a musical city because you need performers and it's the people on the street which are the performers of my musical city. Yeah. Shane, what would the ideal musical city look like to you or music city? Having as much of the music ecosystem or even cultural ecosystem available within as close an area as you live. So that's not just experiencing music, but making it and working within it. And one that simply treats music as seriously as it would treat anything else. So incorporating music as a form of infrastructure, like we would care about our water and electricity and power and roads and schools and hospitals. I think our cultural infrastructure not just music, but all, all forms of culture are as important as all of those. You know, music is, is one of the few things that we don't need to live, but we would all struggle to live without. So, you know, maybe we take it seriously. That would be the kind of place, proper planning system, proper building codes, and people can go out and have fun and sleep next to each other. And we actually use the materials that are available to us to ensure that people are respected on both sides. I feel like I'm bringing you two closer together. Yeah, this he's is starting happening. to talk my language. <laughs> <laughs> it's all relative. This is what the beauty of music is that it can help us compose the rhythms that we desire. The music was originally made by and for the body. And so we, we embody it. We can feel it. So it's a representation of health and sustainability. I think this brings us really well onto the second half of what I wanted to discuss, which is what are the problems that these different approaches, but bringing more music and rhythm into our lives, compatible music and rhythm into our lives, can solve. So maybe, Sarah, if we just start with you, what, mm. what, what are those problems that we're, we're trying to address? Okay, well, I've touched on a couple. One is unsustainable urban planning, which is basically car-based, you know, not not people-based. doesn't have to be necessarily the car, but that has, obviously, we're seeing the ramifications right now with climate change, pollution and respiratory disease and that sort of thing. Rhythm, music and rhythm reminds us that in order to survive, really, in this current state of unsustainable urban planning, we, we need to reconcile the rhythmic differences. For example, we say we want to live more sustainably, but then we still pursue economic growth, which is uh, rhythmically unsustainable. If it were to be sustainable, I would imagine that it has to be much closer aligned with renewable resources. 
And I feel like you're talking about that on the big scale of like how of we rhythm. generate yeah, yeah, our sorry. energy, but also our, the energy that we ourselves yes, have yes, exactly. on a daily basis. Yes. Like, you know, Shane didn't sleep Shane last didn't, night. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I could have done with a couple more hours this morning, I'm you know. Sure. So, and, and, you know, and if uh, you see the ramifications on people's health when they do shift work all the time, it really is not compatible with with healthy living. Okay, so what the first problem you're talking about is the clash or the conflict in the rhythm of our of us of our bodies versus the rhythm of kind of the society, environment the environment around and, us. and the city being the mediator between the two okay because Got it, it is the constructed entity yeah. that we have a choice in how we design in how we design and plan okay. okay shane can you give us a couple of the problems that you're looking to solve from your end i agree that this obsession over growth is wholly unsustainable our planet's not getting bigger uh, so if the planet's not getting bigger, then us growing the way we are is is not going to work. Mainly, the problem that we're trying to solve is to incorporate music more into solutions for people's livelihoods and economic growth. So, you know, the music industry is not wholly global in the way that people have access to it. So in a lot of countries around the world, there is no proper framework for music copyright to be paid back to the writers. So copyright is one of those things that we all understand, but few of us take seriously. And in order for music to properly contribute to people's livelihoods in as equitable way as possible, then it needs to have an economic foundation for it to work on. And while in the UK, we do have that and a lot of other countries we don't. So that's that's one of the main problems that I'm working to solve, which I know isn't specifically a city-based issue, but it is, in that sense, if people could be earning money to feed their families and pay their rents, then I believe that has a positive impact on the cities and the places in which they live. I think as well, another thing is is ensuring that as cities are designed or redesigned or adapted or readapted, that music and culture play a positive, supportive role. So that is a lot of that is down to soundscaping and environmental health and making sure that anything that is adapted, anything that is built that has uh, potential noise-making uses is done properly so that people can live in greater density in a sustainable and in a happy way. The last thing that we want is to create more entertainment districts where people live because they want vibrancy, but then they can't sleep because vibrancy is noisy. I feel that music is a terrific kind of canary in the development coal mine, we say. It's a great tool to reimagine and redevelop our cities. Yeah. And it, and it needs to be composed. Like music is composed, so the city has to be composed to make these activities compatible with each other over time and space. Yeah. So, I mean, Shane, you're, you're talking about accessibility to music, about making it economically viable, not only for the artists who are producing the music, but also for people to consume it and you know as you were saying about accessibility to music you know I grew up in Mumbai and there's a lot of us that went to lots of music events but I can imagine vast swathes of the population have never had the time or money or ability to access musical events for example so so almost the democratization of our experience of yeah culture well one of the reasons why is is because historically there hasn't been an economic foundation for music to exist as an economy, it's piracy and cash in hand. So if something is led by black market principles, um, then it's it's very hard to create more of an accessible product around it because people aren't getting paid for the work that they're doing. 
you know, if people aren't getting paid for the work that they're doing, then usually it creates more of an hourglass than a pipeline in some sense. So there's people at the top still have access to it. And there's loads of people at the bottom, but the middle is shrunk. So that's one side of it. The other side is literal physical access. It's very, you know, stairs are a huge issue in the music industry. Literal access to venues and making them DDA compliant is a big challenge in a country whose buildings were built 200 years ago, for the most part, as well as creating spaces that are suitable and adapted for neurodivergent or people who have other disabilities in one way or another. Sometimes it's little things like concerts over a certain size should have sign language interpreters next to the stage. It's creating a framework to understand what the problems are and then taking a, an evidenced and intentional approach to dealing with them, whether it is physical access issues around uh, mental health or disability or economic access in countries that have disparate, let's say, access to, to engaging with and experiencing music. Sarah, you've got some practical examples. London Sound Map. Talk yeah. me through that. Maybe even show it to me. Yeah, sure. On my computer. <laughs> it's a small <laughs> version that's in my book, which is uh, people can actually play with because it's interactive and audiovisual. But basically, I believe that music can help revolutionise urban planning by encouraging social interaction because ultimately music in public spaces connects all the people in that space, whether they like it or not. So I've been creating some interactive urban interventions which encourage people to participate through the use of sound. Sound basically encourages action and when you've got lots of people together, interaction. The London Sound Map basically is based on sounds of London which have been not necessarily modified or retuned but composed in a way which they actually can be synchronized with each other to create a piece of music so do you want to have a go <laughs> yeah it yes. looks like an artistic interpretation of the tube map in a mm-hmm. way with like a bit of the river and then you've got icons of different stuff on here i can see a crane for sure i think i can see the london eye i think i can see the tube is that the tube no no that's a bike that's a bike Okay. With the bell, yeah. You can try Big Ben. I, th- I think Big Ben is pretty much... <gasps> the clock. The clock. <laughs> that would have been obvious. <laughs> <laughs> and then maybe add in... Um... Is there a crane here? Yeah, I'm... there's a tra- yeah. crane. Add the crane. Want some construction. It's almost bringing together these sounds yeah. that you hear on an yeah. everyday basis. So it brings awareness to the different types of sounds, but also the way in which they can actually come together if if we have a musical city so try the zigzaggy one which is the, the bus doors opening and closing yeah you can hear the kind of piston yeah. sound and yeah. then the so all these little um, auditory icons let's say are composed so that they are synchronised and like a droning yeah so that's the London Eye. What about the Jubilee line? There's a tube in there somewhere. Yeah. So that one is actually very interesting because um, when this map was in London on the street, on Regent Street, which is actually not very far from here, we had a three-year-old boy who basically stood on it for an hour. Wow. So this was open to the public and it, when Regent Street is closed off to traffic and uh, we had people just rocking up and playing around with it and meeting other people. And this little boy just would not get off that 
icon. And his mother explained it was because he had actually a traumatic experience when he was one and a half on the Jubilee line. And that, that kind of shows you the impact that urban sounds can have on our psyche and our mental health. Basically, he has associated that sound with that memory and uh, never wanted to go on the Jubilee line or the Bakerloo line, I think, as well, because it's similar. And so this poor mum had to take every other line going around the Jubilee and the Bakerloo to get to places. And then after this experience, she kept in touch and she told me that six months later, they were back on the Jubilee line. And now and then he had a bedspread cover with a London tube on oh, it wow. and he loves public transport. <laughs> I mean, because he had that new experience mm. where he was surrounded by other kids and, yeah. he, you know, he had, control, he had control of that sound yeah. and it was no longer a traumatic memory. Amazing. What does the future city sound like? So, Shane, let's start with you. What, what does a future city sound like? Well, hopefully one where... To me, where real life and and digital life are aligned in at the same time, while anything that happens digitally is attributed to the human being who initiated it. So as AI develops, it's really important that any of the data that AI is learning from, especially when it comes to music and culture, is attributed to the person or people that created it. More alignment, hopefully in a positive way rather than in pure surveillance And I think that cities are going to just be more, hopefully, interactive in that sense. I guess like the kid that you spoke of who was playing with the map. And I hope that music plays more of a role in communities. We need to find ways to communicate with each other more and find common ground. Sarah, what do you hope the future city would look like or what do you think the future city might sound like? I guess I hear something that is appropriate to how I feel and which allows me to express how I feel as well and allows the people around me to also feel like they are able to express how they feel. So it's, it is not where everyone is on their iPhone with the headphones, noise cancelling, not listening to each other, basically playing their individual parts separately. It's where people come together and collaboratively create the urban soundscape in a way which is synchronised and harmonious and in a shared uh, experience, whatever that may be. You know, it doesn't always have to be good, but I, I do think that we need to learn how to interact with each other and communicate with each other, and I think that music does that. It connects people. You've been listening to Create the Future, a podcast from the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering and Peanut and Crumb. This episode was presented by me, Roma Agrawal, and produced by Tess Davidson. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really recommend listening to The Future of Living and Sensing Cities with Carlo Ratti and Professor Rachel Armstrong. It's a fascinating exploration of urban ecology and the surprising materials being used to create eco-friendly cities around the world today. New conceptions of what architecture is and could be are going to emerge out of this. To find out more, follow QE Prize on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Thank you for listening. Listener.